This rare cast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic diseases. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Enzyme replacement therapies are available for a number of rare metabolic diseases that collectively are known as lysosomal storage disorders. These therapies have brought great benefit to patients. One problem, though, is that the enzymes don't cross the blood-brain barrier and don't address the severe and progressive neurological complications caused by many of these diseases. Armagen thinks it has a solution. By connecting the enzyme to a protein that is allowed to cross the blood-brain barrier, Armagen hopes to exploit a natural mechanism to address the CNS complications of these diseases. We spoke to Matthias Schmidt, CEO of Armagen, about the company's platform technology, its pipeline of enzyme replacement therapies for lysosomal storage disorders, and its implications for more common neurological diseases. Matthias, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We're going to talk about rare neurologic diseases, the problem the blood-brain barrier represents in addressing the CNS component of diseases, and Armagen's technology that promises to address this fundamental problem. You're working to develop therapies for a number of lysosomal storage disorders. There, there are enzyme replacement therapies for some of these diseases, but as they're infused today, they don't prevent CNS complications. I, I thought we could focus on Hurler syndrome, also known as MPS-1, since that's your most advanced therapy. What is Hurler syndrome? So uh, patients with uh, Hurler syndrome, they have either very low levels or no levels of an enzyme that is called alpha-L hydronidase. And this enzyme is normally, it is found in the lysosome of the cells. And the lysosome is the trash can of the cell. And the function of this enzyme is to degrade certain substrates um, called glycans. And if those patients uh, either have very low levels or no levels of this enzyme, those glycosaminoglycans, they build up in the lysosome. They form inclusion body, and then finally is the cause of the disease pathology. Um, they build up, they do not get degraded anymore, and they interfere with the function of the cells um, uh, that can result up to cell death. Now, patient, uh, patients with uh, Hurler syndrome, they can have um, different manifestations of the disease. In the uh, most severe form, which is called Hurler's disease, um, patients are, have basically the uh, most significant um, disease manifestation um, that can result in uh, very severe uh, cardiac problems, pulmonary problems. Um, they have uh, deformations in their spine. They have uh, 
problems with bone, um, they have problems with growth, and most are significantly, they have a, a significant um, uh, mental retardation very often. Patients with Herder-Shea syndrome, they normally have a uh, milder disease. They're also diagnosed a little bit uh, later in life. Uh, Herder patients are actually diagnosed very often before the age, uh, before the age of one. And Herder-Shaded uh, patients normally uh, around the age of four to five. And as I said, they have a milder disease course in more attenuated form. And the mildest form of the disease um, can be uh, Shea disease. And those patients are very often not diagnosed until their 20s or 30s. And very often they undergo an odyssey of misdiagnoses. Very often they are misdiagnosed from, from rheumatoid arthritis uh, because the disease also comes with a lot of joint pain, joint swelling. And it does not ha um, happen rarely that Shea patients are actually diagnosed by their ophthalmologist because they, um, they displace a corneal clouding um, that is very typical of disease. Something that I also have to mention that is also very um, impairing, very much impairing um, the daily life of those patients is um, that many of those patients actually suffer from a uh, hearing impairment or a hearing loss. Well, this is a, a disease that's long had an enzyme replacement therapy available, one of the first such therapies. What can we do and not do with existing enzyme therapies for diseases like MPS1? So there is a, uh, an enzyme replacement therapy available for patients with MPS1, and it was approved approximately 14 years ago. And it really has revolutionized the way we treat MPS1, and subsequently many other um, enzyme replacement therapies have been um, approved for, for similar um, lysosomal storage diseases. And the way how those uh, treatments have revolutionized the, the way how we treat those patients is they actually have added life or years to the life of those patients. Severe patients with MPS1 or Herder's disease, they rarely would reach the second decade of life. And now with the uh, availability of standard uh, replacement uh, therapy, those patients can easily enter into the second decade of life, third decade of life. And it re they, the therapy now takes care, relatively good care, of the somatic symptoms of the disease so that they have a prolonged life. But if you read a review or if you talk to a physician or if you talk to a patient or parents, this standard enzyme replacement therapy, it does not go across the blood-brain barrier and it does not go into the bones. So despite the fact um, that we have a uh, somewhat uh, good um, somatic disease control of the uh, in MDS1 with this enzyme replacement therapy, those patients still suffer from a very significant cognitive disease burden and also their orthopedic disease burden is completely unaddressed. Well, you're using what's known as a, a fusion protein to carry the enzyme across the blood-brain barrier. C can you explain how this works? Yes, so that's a great question. Mother Nature has invented something that we call the, uh, the blood-brain barrier. And without the existence of the blood-brain barrier, um, probably 
um, human beings would have never um, evolved. So the blood-brain barrier actually prevents the entry of uh, noxious or toxic or infectious substances to get into the brain and to damage the brain. Now, while this has been an amazing invention by Mother Nature, the blood-brain barrier is the biggest impediment to bring large molecules across the blood-brain barrier. So you have to imagine this in a in a certain uh, in the following way. In uh, in the addressing of uh, especially lysosomal storage diseases, we are handcuffed in the way we can address the disease pathology by small molecules that in principle are able to cross the blood-brain barrier. We know that alcohol, ethanol can cross the blood-brain barrier, aspirin, and also um, some some are small molecules to treat, uh, for instance, depression. They can also um, cross the blood-brain barrier. But large molecules that we need uh, in order to address the pathophysiology of those diseases are unable to cross the blood-brain barrier. Now, um, there, is, there are a few exceptions to the rule that large molecules like proteins or enzymes can cross the blood-brain barrier. And one of those large molecules that actually does cross the blood-brain barrier is insulin. We all know, basically from elementary school or from high school, that insulin is made exclusively in the pancreas. However, insulin has also a very important function in the brain. Now, you have to ask yourself, how does insulin cross the blood-brain barrier? And that's a receptor that is called the insulin receptor. The insulin receptor is expressed in the entire human body, and it has a very important role for the regulation of glucose homeostasis in the human body. However, at the blood-brain barrier, the insulin receptor has a different function, namely to shuffle insulin from the blood across the blood-brain barrier into the brain. And the technology that we employ is basically a Trojan horse technology where we exploit this very mechanism, um, the way that insulin gets shuffled across the blood-brain barrier. And what we have done is we have developed an antibody that can bind the insulin receptor, but it does not compete the binding of insulin to this receptor. And so the antibody is shuffled across the blood-brain barrier, very much like insulin. And now, by fusing an enzyme to this antibody, you have a therapeutic that can bind to the insulin receptor by the antibody portion. It's shuttled across the blood-brain barrier, and then the enzyme therapeutic payload is released into the brain and can exert its therapeutic mechanism of action. Is this something that would be used in addition to conventional enzyme therapy, or, or does this have a systemic benefit that addresses the disease throughout the body? Yeah, this is another great question. So actually, it is a dual targeting mechanism. So it can cross the blood-brain barrier exactly by the mechanism that I have um, um, explained before. But the way standard enzyme replacement therapy finds its way into the lysosome is, is by a so-called, what I call a zip code, and that is a zip code on the surface of this protein, and it's a sugar tree called mannose-6-phosphate. And this mannose-6-phosphate is uh, binding to the mannose-6-phosphate receptor on every cell, and thereby dragged into the lysosome. And because our fusion protein actually has the insulin receptor binding domain, 
but still has this manyl-6-phosphate zip code on the in the on the enzyme portion, it can also find its way into the lysosome of, of every normal somatic cell in the human body. And the reason why this is important is the following. Enzyme replacement therapy is um, is a very expensive therapy. It costs are anywhere between two and three hundred thousand dollars per patient per year. And our therapy that we are currently developing is not an add-on therapy. It is something that will replace what I would call now the first generation of enzyme replacement therapies. And this will be the second generation of enzyme replacement therapy that treats both the somatic disease burden and the cognitive disease burden. Well, what do we know about this therapy from clinical studies to date in terms of both safety and efficacy? Yeah. So let's address the safety first. Before we went into human beings, there were a lot of concerns that interfering with the insulin receptor um, would not allow us to sustain glucose homeostasis in the human body and that those patients might um, experience long periods of hyperglycemia, so elevated glucose levels, or even more importantly, hypoglycemia, which is... Uh, lowered levels of glucose in the human body. But what we know now from more than 300 independent infusions in patients, and we have patients, we have um, a couple of, a few patients who have completed more than one year of treatment with our fusion protein. We now know that we can control glucose homeostasis very well. And the way how we do this is um, we actually infuse the antibody fusion protein in a 5% dextrose solution. And the way you can imagine this is basically it's, a, it's one walk through the donut shop. So those patients with standard ERT, enzyme replacement therapy, they are being treated once a week um, over a time period of three hours in an infusion unit in the hospital. And we didn't deviate from this treatment schedule. So our patients also come once per week into the hospital and get an infusion over three, hour, uh, three hours with our fusion protein in 5% dextrose solution. And we monitor the glucose levels are very closely. And there have been some events where the blood glucose was going down, but it was never to a severe or life-threatening level. And whenever this happens, the patients are given a snack. And only in very, very rare cases, um, we, had to, we had to subsidize this with a glucose infusion, um, which is not, not a big deal um, for the patient and not, also not for the physician. And um, normally those patients would, uh, would be given a snack by their parents um, during the infusion time anyway. So we do see some, some rare events of hypoglycemia, but they're transient and they're very well controlled. And another um, observation that is very often happening, or um, not under, let's, let's better say um, not, not infrequently happening, is that patients develop antibodies against the naked enzyme, and they get, uh, develop hypersensitivity reactions and local reactions. And the standard EOT, um, it can happen that they develop um, also severe anaphylactic reactions, and that requires uh, significant, med significant medical intervention. While we have not seen until now 
any of those anaphylactic, re uh, anaphylactic reactions with any uh, with our fusion protein. Uh, we certainly cannot exclude that. We did see um, some local um, reactions uh, that can be treated with antihistamines or steroids. Um, but um, the overarching safety profile, um, we are very satisfied with it. There's um, no safety concerns um, that came up that would not be explainable by the mechanism of action of the drug um, or, or something that would not have been explainable um, or otherwise. Now coming to the efficacy um, of the drug, uh, what we have done is um, the trial is still ongoing. We finished enrollment, but the, uh, the patients are still under treatment. We have done a, a trial in Brazil. And the difference in Brazil here is um, in, compare, in comparison to the United States or Europe. The most severely affected patients, the HERLA patients, are um, in, in the United States and Europe. What they are offered is a stem cell transplantation therapy. And this needs to be conducted um, below the age of 16 months, where it shows uh, the highest efficacy in terms of improving the cognitive disease burden. If it's done at a later age, the therapy is uh, not as efficacious as if it was done at, at younger ages. Now, in Brazil, the standard, this, this uh, hematopoietic stem cell therapy is not standard of care. So those patients, especially the severe patients, the herder patients, the only therapeutic option they have is standard enzyme replacement therapy. Now, you, to, you need to, <coughs> you have to imagine, um, hematopoietic, uh, hematopoietic stem cell transplantation does not bring a patient nowhere near normal functionality or also not close to being, you know, symptomatically to a Shea patient. What transplanted say is stem cell transplantation doesn't really help the patients. It only prevents the patients from getting worse. And what we see in the natural history of those patients in, in Brazil, they basically develop up to an age of two to three to the cognitive age equivalent of approximately a 20-month-old kid. They stay stable for maybe a year or so and then they start losing functions. And by the age of 8, 9, 10, 12 years, they basically have only vegetative function available, and then, you know, those patients will also die. What we have seen um, in, in our first patient that has basically finished um, 12 months of treatment, and he's still in extension, um, this, this patient was uh, a little bit more than nine years of age when he started enrollment, and he was very severely affected, and he had a body weight of less than 20 kilograms despite his biological age of um, a little bit more than nine, nine months. And he has been on enzyme replacement therapy for more than seven years um, before he was switched on, on our Trojan horse fusion protein. And this patient, in his fine motor skills, expressive language, and respect, uh, receptive language, and also in his cognitive function, he was basically, despite the biological age of nine years, he was at the age equivalent score of a 16 days old newborn kid. His gross motor skills were developed to a degree of an approximately six months old kid, 
which allowed him to somewhat sit independently. Now, after 52 weeks of treatment, his fine motor skills went up from a 16-days-old kid to a 16-month-old kid. So as a 16-days-old kid, you're unable to use your hands at all. As a 16-month-old kid, you can use your hands, you can hold a cup, you can reach out for a cup, you can hold a cup, you can drink from a cup, you may be able to use a spoon to feed yourself. His expressive language started to come up and he developed language skills equivalent to a approximately seven-month-old kid. And again, he was at 16 days. His cognitive skills came up to the equivalent of approximately a nine-month-old kid. Again, it, he started at a 16-days-old kid. And also his gross motor skills are now so developed um, that he is able to stand. He may be able to walk a little bit but it's a huge difference from what we have seen at the time where he was uh, where he was involved, and we have seen um, cognitive improvement in uh, you know five kids or four out of five kids who have um, completed either 26 weeks or 52 weeks. And again, I have to re-emphasize: stabilization of those kids would be already considered a victory. And now seeing that he can actually improve the cognitive trajectory um, is something that makes us uh, feel very, very humble. One patient continued to stabilize. I have to say this patient had a very unfavorable prognosis because he was an exception. He actually did undergo stem cell therapy, but he underwent the awful period of stem cell of ablation, but he did not experience any engraftment. So he would have a very... Um, poor prognosis and stabilization was something that um, um, made us feel, feel very happy about, about it. One of the things we've seen in rare diseases like MPS1 is that therapies have changed the natural histories of these diseases. As someone developing a next-generation treatment, how does that affect the clinical endpoints of your study? Um, that's an, another excellent question and a, and a big challenge for us. So standard enzyme replacement therapy has been approved um, based on uh, something would be called a, uh, a walk test, a six minutes walk test. And it is measured, you know, before the onset of therapy and uh, at the end of the trial, um, how many meters a patient can actually walk in six, within six minutes. Now, because we influence the cognitive disease burden, we have to go for totally different endpoints as compared to the first generation of enzyme replacement therapy. There are um, certain cognitive um, measurement scales um, approved by the FDA as a cognitive endpoint. Um, those are, for instance, the Bailey scale, the Kaufman scales, or the Wexler scales that measure the approximate, um, approximate development quotient <coughs> or that um, uh, measure the approximate in, um, IQ of those patients. And the FDA encouraged us to use those, uh, those endpoints. But, uh, we had, um, just this month, um, no, last month, uh, in May, we had some very encouraging meetings with the FDA, but encouraged us to look at the totality of the data in the patients and to look what is really meaningful for the patients. For instance, the ability to stand or to walk or to use a spoon 
or to speak a few words, or to communicate the, with, with the parents, or to develop some curiosity, something that is not measured by any of those cognitive uh, parameters, is something that can be meaningful for parents, patients, caregivers. And the, and the FDA gives us very good signals to move away from those slavish endpoints where you look for statistical significance towards looking at the, from a holistic endpoint and the, at the totality of the data, what really makes a difference um, in the life of the parents, the patients, and the caregiver. What's the clinical path forward and what it will take to get an approval? Yeah, so what we are currently doing is um, in our uh, phase two trial in Brazil, all of those patients who have finished the 26 weeks, they opted to stay on the um, to stay on the drug, and um, we are very grateful because we can connect with the data how they develop long term. But as we speak, we are planning um, the design of a pivotal phase three trial where we're going to look at those cognitive endpoints. Um, and simultaneously, we also want to look at some of those somatic endpoints to give the pediatrician and the clinician confidence that the drug is not only influencing the cognitive disease burden, but like um, the approved standard, standard um, replacement therapy is also um, controlling the somatic disease burden um, to a degree that is currently achieved by by standard enzyme replacement therapy, so that the physician does not even have to think about co-administering this drug together with standard ERT, but this will be actually actually the replacement current um, um, enzyme replacement therapy. Uh, your technology has much broader implications than just lysosomal storage disorders, but it includes a range of CNS disorders. How broadly applicable do you believe the technology is, and what's the range of molecules it's capable of transporting across the blood-brain barrier? Yes, I want to be very honest here. Armatin is a small company, and we have uh, we have built what I what I would consider a, a credible footprint in the lysosomal storage disease area. This technology as such can transport any large molecule that's a blood-brain barrier, and that hypothetically opens up a floodgate towards the treatment of very debilitating um, neurological, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, uh, multiple sclerosis, and you name it. But there are companies who have a much, much deeper knowledge into the disease biology and the pathobiology of those diseases. And those companies, they actually already have developed certain large molecules like antibodies for the treatment of those diseases. However, they are significantly limited by bringing those large molecules um, across the platform barrier, and we are already partnering with some of those large pharmaceutical companies to help them Basically, I consider we're providing the, the, the rocket that provides, um, you know, a transporter for their shuttle to bring it into, to bring the therapeutic into the, into the orbit of the CNS. Um, but we, uh, but we hope to, to forge, uh, more of those alliances and also to, you know, to make our technology, um, amenable and applicable to disease areas where we currently don't have a credible footprint. And we need strong partners for it. 
Well, you've partnered your experimental therapeutic for MPS2 with Shire. Is the expectation that you would partner your other therapeutic candidates as well? So I think Thomas and hypothetically can, can, can develop this, this, uh, this particular molecule in MPS1 um, by itself. However, I'm a strong believer, I'm a firm believer that if you have a strong partner, um, you can develop something faster, smarter, um, maybe better. And you know, the end thing here is to provide this, you know, next generation, um, this revolution. I, I really call it a revolution because for the very first time, um, we have realistic hope that we can influence the cognitive disease burden in patients. The end goal here is to bring this innovation to the patient's path. And we should be agnostic to the way how we bring this innovation to the patient fast, because those patients, they cannot wait. Matthias Schmidt, CEO of Armagen. Matthias, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.